1: and fish can coexist peacefully read my lips and then we're going to washington dc to take back the white house Ah! i love
2: the poorly educated we're the smartest people we're the most loyal people
1: i don't have anything i'm i'm out out of witty things to say at this point (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the well has run dry in quarantine tell you what's not running dry though this margarita hmm. uh, hi guys hi facebook hi youtube uh welcome back it's uh Barstool politics i'm your host nick mcguire joined as always by dr bill muck from north central college and dr phil barker from keene state college hi guys hey, hey nick Uh, Before we get started, we actually have a bunch of stuff to talk about this week. Um, So we'll go through the standard stuff and then a few new surprises as well. Uh, So if you guys uh, like the podcast, have questions, comments, viewer suggestions, anything like that, follow us on Twitter uh, at Barstool Paul, P-O-L, Facebook, where you can find our uh, live shows, which we do every Wednesday uh, at 430 Central. Uh, It's uh, Barstool Politics on Facebook. Uh, Follow us through there. Uh, our YouTube page, which uh, does not have a direct link, uh, just take my word that we have one. Uh, we also do our live shows on there. Uh, you'll find a link on our social channels, um, so definitely give that uh, a look uh, if you're more interested in YouTube than Facebook. That's apparently where all the kids are are, are watching things now, correct? That's what I hear, Nick. Yep. <laughs> um, and then the podcast, uh, Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple uh, Podcast Podcast, uh, Stitcher, Google Play Music, most major podcasting platforms. uh, Beer's Week Try, uh, you can find on on Untapped on iOS or Android. Just look for Barstool Politics on there. Um, That's all the normal stuff, right? That is. Cool. Uh, So a couple of fun things. Uh, So for returning listeners or anybody new, uh, we're actually going to do a a little contest, a a little giveaway. Uh, Like I said, we, uh, oh, I missed the, the, the merch thing. So I'll just go into it here. Uh, we're going to be giving away uh, a full set of uh, Barstool Politics gear, uh, so a T-shirt, a hoodie, and a mug with our logo on it. Uh, I'm going to put the direct link in chat right now for the live show. That's not it at all because I copied something else. So I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to save that. <laughs> just, just give me, just give me, give me some time on this. I swear <laughs> to God, I'm going to get it right one day. Um, there it is. Yeah, so uh, like I said, uh, realistically, uh, you're just going to go to this web page. Um, all you'll need to do is uh, follow us or tweet us or follow our Facebook page, uh, follow us on YouTube, uh, and you'll get uh, get entries uh, to win the contest. Uh, it's going to be going on from now uh, until uh, for two weeks, so uh, two episodes, so two two Wednesdays from now, um, you'll have a chance to uh, to get some entries in uh like i said the the stuff is great uh it's very high quality um we certainly appreciate the support uh we'd love to see you guys wearing it uh so yeah have have fun with that uh i'll keep promoting that uh as time goes on but um hold on free stuff that? nick it doesn't free get any better stuff. than that yeah we're not wow. going to make you pay for it <laughs> um and then another really cool thing which uh we just kind of um uh, uh decided on this week uh we're gonna have a special guest next week uh alexander titus who was the uh the inaugural assistant director uh for biotechnology uh with the office of the cto at the dod um is going to join us i know right (laughs) uh he's he's great uh we're gonna talk about uh synthetic biology uh his time at uh at the dod um his kind of take on uh the covid response um you know gonna Figure out what's what's true and what's not, and what's being reported, uh, and just kind of have a fun discussion with him. Uh, so that'll be next week. Uh, definitely tune in for that. Um, we're we're looking forward to it. I think that's going to be a lot of fun. I mean, he specializes in
2: synthetic biology. We can talk a lot about biological weapons and and the nature of the threat that's posed. Uh, really fascinating guy. Uh, who yeah, who absolutely had a really important position at the Department of Defense. So looking forward to that.
1: Yep. Um, yeah. So that was that was a lot of stuff to go through already. Um, but yeah, so this was, uh, another, another banner week for, uh, for the president and the administration and for the COVID response. Um, but what seems to be getting more and more attention is the, uh, the U S China relationship, uh, how that's continuing to sour, uh, and what that means, uh, for, for future relationships between the or relations between the two, uh, countries. Um, so Bill, can you kind of fill us in on what's been uh, going on?
2: Absolutely. So yeah, today we thought, as Nick pointed out, we take a deep dive on an issue that hasn't gotten a ton of attention, but is likely to be the most consequential factor shaping our post-COVID-19 world. And that's the relationship between the United States and China. The relationship has always been strained, but COVID-19 stands to push it over the top into a Cold War, potentially something worse. There appears to be an emerging, emerging bipartisan consensus within the United States that it's time to get tough on China. In fact, it appears that a central issue of the 2020 presidential campaign will be Trump and Biden trying to prove that they will be tougher on China. Although Trump himself often seems as if he can't figure out how to approach China, oscillating between complimenting and blaming China for its handling of the coronavirus. There are a number of questions that need to be addressed. For instance, what responsibility does China bear for this? Should the U.S. make China pay? And what would that even look like in a sovereign state system? What are we to make of the growing nationalism coming out of China over the last five years? Um, Is it fair to say that the post-Nixon policy of engagement with China has failed? And at a macro level, what does the history of great power conflict teach us? Uh, There's this idea of the Thucydides trap. So let's start with an easy one, Phil. True or false, cold wars are good and easy
0: to win. (laughs) go (laughs) (laughs) well it's obviously true uh no it's not um yeah i mean there's so much in this right there's there's so many elements and I, i was trying to think of like how do we tackle this or how do we approach all of them and so let me just kind of make a few uh points or statements here and then we can you can kind of run with what you uh where where you think i'm wrong um so the issue of blame i think is you know we kind of start with with that um and uh i i think so some caveats before i i go too far into this is that i you know i've said on this podcast before that that uh like blame moral accountability uh can be guilt can be distributed without being divided right mm-hmm. so more than one person can be to blame for a situation i feel like Oftentimes, especially when you have a big complex issue like this, there is this tendency, a human tendency to want to find a villain, right? To point to someone, you caused this, you're to blame. Um, And so I, I don't, the first thing I should say is that I don't think it's that simple, right? I think there's, this is a really complicated thing. And there are a lot of people who should bear some blame for how this has played out. Having said all of that, China is absolutely one of them, right? So, um, uh, you know the 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 way in which, uh, particularly early on, they they tried to suppress this. I, I kept thinking today, as I was thinking about this this uh, issue coming up, um, about the analogy which we've used in other situations, but the analogy to Chernobyl, um, and this really does kind of line up with it. And in, in a sense, as you see more and more reports that have come out about China, um, the the way that. You know, in the Soviet Union, if any if listeners have watched the Chernobyl documentary, they're familiar with this. But the initial response from the Soviet leadership was not about fixing the problem or saving their citizens; it was about saving face, right? It was about controlling the narrative, and that's exactly how that played out in China. Um, in in that there's you know all sorts of evidence that they didn't really give a damn about their their citizens and what was happening to them, um, or about the implications for the international community. They just wanted to control the narrative and make it not look so bad. Um, and and I think just like the Soviet Union deserved to be blamed for that with Chernobyl, this is uh, you know another situation. The the Chernobyl thing was contained, but if it hadn't been, it would have caused you know suffering and death all over the place, sort of like this has. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think that there's there's a lot of of uh, blame to go around. Um, let let me just say one more thing on that, and then I was gonna well, I'll come back to the other topics later. But I, I think the interesting part is that. If we're sticking with the Chernobyl analogy, um, Chernobyl had huge implications for the Soviet Union. A lot of scholars point to it as the beginning of the downfall of the Soviet Union because it revealed all of these problems in the way that uh, you know the 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 state was handling things and the you know the the pushback from the Soviet people and and the backlash. And I I think we're way too early to see if any of that will play out here, but there is a lot of evidence that the Chinese people are pissed, right? <laughs> Understandably. Uh, so yeah, I mean, we can talk about, you know, whether they should pay or not, but, but we should just start with the blame, I guess.
2: Yeah, I think that's yeah, there's the There's different ways we can tackle this. I think responsibility is the first question, like how much responsibility they bear. And then we could talk about the nature of the threat they pose and maybe how they how we want to respond to that. But yeah, absolutely. I like your idea of saying that just because China bears a ton of responsibility, that doesn't mean that they're the only one that the United States is, is scot-free, which Trump is trying to embrace, right? That's part of what we're seeing here is the the United States and Trump is saying that because China is the villain that we don't bear any responsibility, and that's just silly. That being said, as as you noted, China bears a tremendous amount of responsibility for this, and it's incredibly revealing for how poorly they handled this. And I think the Chernobyl one is, is a great example, because early on, had they been Open Had they been transparent, uh, they could have saved a lot of their own lives and they could have saved international lives. So China will pay for this, whether that's financial or not, we can get into that. But in terms of the reputation of of China, this is a a huge, huge hit. And they it's absolutely something that they wanted to avoid. So, yeah, I, I think we we just start at the point that they bear. They bear the biggest responsibility.
0: In both of mm-hmm. those cases, too, <clears throat> there was potential a lot, of, potentially a lot of help from the international community um, that was, you know, turned away because they wanted to save face. The, mm-hmm. the, the analogy—that's really—I'm, I'm really happy with that analogy. <laughs>
2: <laughs> the only, the only thing I would quibble with is that. I think uh, they're at different stages, right? So China is just starting to emerge as a global power, whereas the Soviet Union was on the decline. Right, right. But I think to your point, it does reveal that there are way more cracks in this Chinese system than we we tend to think. We oftentimes build them up as this inevitable world power who's going to dominate the system like the Soviet Union did. That may not be the case, right? I think there's there's certainly a, a surging power, but they are not as perfect as we think.
0: Mm-hmm. Nick, you've been a pretty staunch defender of the Chinese. Communist parties. <laughs> yes.
1: <laughs> you know where my real loyalties lie. Um, no, they are 100% responsible for this in the end. We can certainly there, there, like you said, there are many people and institutions to, to blame for this, but the ultimate responsibility needs to lie with, with the communist Chinese government. Um, and the people who can't make a distinction when people talk about China and, uh, and, and the Chinese people, um, you're you're doing a disservice to to the argument you you can absolutely blame china vehemently without it turning into some sort of xenophobic racist rant um and if you can't do that then i feel exceptionally sorry for you
2: right i mean no you're right and this is this is a really important point there's a distinction between the Chinese people, the Chinese culture, and the repressive CCP, right? I mean, that, that is that is an absolutely important distinction.
1: Yes. Uh, having said that, uh, I, I think the Ch- uh, Chernobyl analogy is good. Uh, I do think that there are some fundamental differences uh, where I, I think that when we talk about international intervention and international help that could, uh, that did help to uh, alleviate the Chernobyl situation and could have helped uh, the, uh, the, the COVID-19 situation. It seems as if China didn't want uh, or, or at least uh, said they didn't need any international assistance, whereas the Soviets did use uh, back-channel uh, uh, political connections to get help from the United States, get help from Western Europe in terms of technology and manpower uh, and strategy to deal with the situation. Obviously, that was slightly more pressing, given what could have happened, uh, and they were certainly right to do that. But China, again, to your point, Bill, was much more concerned about saving face, uh, including disappearing or segmenting or completely cutting off their own population. Uh, and doing whatever was necessary to to get that outcome that they wanted
2: um, and also putting not to interrupt just real quickly, but to kick all international journalists out, I mean China correct. has done this, so you yes. know there's nobody from the New York Times, nobody from the Washington post uh, there is nobody on the ground uh, China has refused to allow u s officials in, so i mean they are they have closed the door doors to any type of transparency
1: yes, uh in addition to that, I would say that um the, the dichotomy between the U.S. or the Western world and the Soviet Union, uh, you had this these very clear distinctions between the two, <clears throat> who aligned with who, what the political and economic uh, uh, environment looked like. After the collapse of that, you have the globalized system that got put in place with the fall of the Soviet e- Union, who um, ultimately the two winners of that were the U.S. and China. So not the, the distinction between... What is uh, or who is necessarily at fault isn't as clear, especially from an economic standpoint, uh, because China is so integral to that system now. And I think that really has has complicated the situation, because whereas you had a, a fairly clear narrative distinction between the two, now you have members of the Chinese government uh um retweeting statements by u.s representatives or u.s uh media personalities or anything like that that are are kind of showing not reverence but a a much more uh middle road perspective of uh chinese culpability in this Mm -hmm. uh and i think that's that's it's it's an extremely complicated story for, for some people just because the system isn't as black and white as it used mm-hmm. to be. And at, you know, over twenty years, it's hard to get, especially younger generations, to kind of look at the world in that in in that way again. Which, you know, there's benefits to that, and there there, there are certainly negatives to that. Um, I personally think it's negative. Mm-hmm. Um it's uh it's I, I, I'm not sure that uh I think China's taken a hit on this from a, a political perspective, at least in the short term. But I think that the way that they operate and their ability to look at things on an exceptionally long term basis uh, suggests to me that they will come out of this without um, the damage that that should be that should be visited on them, both economically uh, and, and frankly, militarily, after all this is said and done. I,
0: go ahead. No, go ahead. I I wonder how much you talking about blame and the and the analogy. I wonder how much of I, this is a, a sort of difficult thing to wrap your head around in terms of blame. A, a nuclear meltdown is a human caused or a human related incident, right? And this is uh, it is you know a virus. It's this naturally occurring thing that is exacerbated or or whatever by human um uh, human systems. And so I I wonder how much of that will allow. China some some ability to sort of be off the hook because people have a harder time thinking of you know responsibility in that sense. Well, you, I mean, you yeah. started to say, Nick. Should, I mean, should we talk about you know whether they should pay or how they should
1: pay or what what this does to Chinese standing in the international community? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it's I, I, it's a really really interesting question because I, I'm not sure what levers you you have at this point uh, to push back against them. Uh, like I said, they are integral to. Obviously, the the WHO, which has been a, a talking point over the past several weeks and months, um, uh, the World Trade Organization, um, they're they're they have their tentacles in everything, and re- realistically, rightfully so. That's that's the system that we helped to create. Um, yeah, I'm not sure that you will find an international international solution to this. I think it will have to be at the state level and have uh, again, kind of. Back channel dealings between different sovereign sovereign states about what a coordinated response looks like. Personally, I would negate most of our debt to China at this point, and they, you know, see see what their response is at that point.
2: The, the Trump administration made its job harder by not embracing internationalism, by not embracing its alliances, because this would have been a lot easier for the Trump administration, if they had embraced NATO, if they had embraced all these organizations, right? Because then you could get a coalition. The United States, if, if it's piecemeal, if it's like individual states, even just the United States trying to uh, to carry out some vengeance against China, it's, it's not going to work well. What you really need is a global effort. And and I, I, you could talk about economic sanctions. You could talk about military, all that sort of stuff. I don't think those are really viable uh, because we're all so intertwined. The reputational one, right? The shaming element is the one that I think would have the biggest impact on China, right? You know, China wants to be perceived as a world power, not as somebody that fumbles through this, that that covers up, right? That's where I think the Trump administration missed an opportunity to pull the international community together to say we can't let this happen again and to expose china uh for the you know for its lack of transparency
1: i mean what exposure do we need at this point when I, when i look at stories in the new york times or the atlantic saying that we screwed up our response and we should have been more like china when they're again welding people into their apartment buildings or disappearing scientists who were sounding the alarm early about this situation or again their human rights record and the yeah. Uyghurs and any number of, of dissident political groups that they've, again, disappeared or imprisoned or it's right. just they, they're reprehensible and people continue to ignore that.
2: Yeah, All of that is absolutely true, right? It's still thinking about how you confront them, though, right? I mean, um, it's just, it's about finding that balance. And my fear is that what's going to happen is that domestic politics within the United States is going to take over. And you're going to have, again, as I noted earlier, you're going to have Trump and Biden trying to out tough China. Uh, and I don't know what that means, right? I mean, I, I think you have to be, as, as you both said, it's, it's a delicate situation. Are economic system is intertwined. Um, you know, you have to think about how you do that in an effective way. Um, it's again, it's much more difficult than I think our, our system is ready to, to pursue.
0: So I, I there's there's a kind of I, I, don't, I can't decide if this is me sort of agreeing with both of you or disagreeing with both of you. <laughs> um, I, I think you're so I, you talk, Bill, about like the U.S.'s response and how they could respond. And and, you know, Nick, you're saying, like, what else do we need to see before we make a decision? And I, I would sort of argue that. If we step back from it, the assumption that the U.S. has to be at the lead of any sort of uh, response to China is a very, you know, that's how we've come to think of it, because since World War II, the U.S. has been sort of this international leader. But we have sort of backed away from that, Um, which I I tend to think that you're right, Nick. What else do we need to see? I think the international community has seen enough. And I think that whether the U.S. leads on this or not, China's international uh um standing is going to be damaged by this. I mean it, it's it's a serious when you're talking international politics I think we have to think more certainly medium term but maybe even long term. I mean there are short term implications to stuff but but this you know the, if you th- look at Chinese policy not just over the last year but over the last 30 years, right? Where you have you know, Tiananmen Square and you have, you know, you have, they had SARS before they had this, they have, you know, their con- constant escalation in the South China Sea. I mean, the, the sort of nature of, of communist China, you know, policy and leadership, I think is apparent to the international system. And I think they will pay a price and they have paid a price. And I think th- it, it, they pay a price in that sort of unsatisfactory international relations kind of way. The price mo- many times in international politics isn't, you know, a nuclear bomb, right? It's not an immediate strike against them. It's this long term reputational cost. It's this the, the fact that people are unwilling to deal with them or people don't trust them or, you know, their standing falls. And, and I think that will come. Um, it's, it's not going to be this satisfactory, Hey, we want a lawsuit or we, we let a strike against them, but it doesn't, that doesn't mean that they haven't paid a price for these mistakes that they have made along the way, or they're not necessarily mistakes They're It's for bad, you know, bad leadership and bad policy coming out of an authoritarian (laughs) state.
2: Mm-hmm. I agree with that. The only thing I would add, though, is that th- this isn't over, right? Both, you know, the international community is trying to shape these narratives and China realizes what it's done. And it is out there trying to, to sure. craft this narrative in a way, to, to Nick's point earlier, that makes them see like, well, they may seem like they made the initial mistake, but boy, then they they had this wonderful system to, to counteract it. Then they started handing out PPEP around the world that they were the real leaders. If they come up with the, uh, the vaccine, that allows them to again to argue that, yes, it started here. But we were that's why I think American leadership is so important here to pull people together. Um, You know, the U.S. has seeded this leadership. And I think a a strong voice uh, to say that what happened here to call for increased transparency. I mean, Trump hasn't even really pushed them publicly about letting U.S. inspectors in. Right. That that seems like something where only the U.S. could really be that leading voice and if if we're not there, then the only one out there right now is china and again i I know that trump is is attacking China, but not in a sophisticated way so I, <laughs> my fear is that they're going to continue to be able to shape this narrative and and they absolutely are right They're very, very good at that uh so i I, I think it's still to be decided mm hmm.
1: You want to go. No, 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 no.
2: <laughs> I, guess, I guess one of the things to think about is is we could continue to kick around what this response looks like. Uh, you know what what does making China pay? I, I mean, Nick, you uh, you talked about the idea of economics, and and you're seeing that within the Trump administration, they are. I, I don't know how serious this, is, but they've mentioned uh, not paying back debt. Uh, they've mentioned uh, That's my San idea. China. I want
1: I want credit for that.
2: Right. Yeah. <laughs> and so I I, I wonder. I, my, I don't know. I, I wonder whether those are good ideas or bad ideas. I, I don't know. I, I it, it strikes me that's a quick way to drift into a cold war, and that's. I, I think that would be a terrible outcome from this. If, if that relationship between the United States and sour, China sours to the point where we are now in you know 1947 1948, where the Cold War starts to take over.
1: It,
0: it, there is a philosophical question at the heart of this, and and the you know the World Health Organization issue is an example where the Trump administration has decided essentially to you know to withdraw funding from the WHO because of their you know sort of the the extent to which they're uh, operating closely with China on this or whatever, and that that's the that's this question of do you are, do you sort of punish right or do you step up and fill this leadership gap right the critique of that is if you if the US withdraws from the WHO it just opens up more Space within the WHO for China to really control it. So, uh, you know, how do you counteract this rising power? And 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 it's this question of you know hard power versus soft power. It's you know realist versus liberal. It gets at all of these kind of of debates that have been going on within the international relations community for seventy five years now.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I think the the bigger argument that we need to be having, especially right now uh, as this is going on, is like I mentioned earlier, China has benefited immensely from the globalized system that was created, uh, certainly uh, after World War II, and even more so after the collapse of the Soviet Union. Uh, with their, uh, again, their their influence um, and um, uh, membership uh, amongst different international organizations and in the way that they've become such an integral part of the international community uh especially from an economic standpoint i guess my i i question the efficacy of that globalized system if one of its primary players is not playing by the rules and realistically is never played by the rules but now they have so much influence over it that it's 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 a zero-sum game like i i think that this is a really important point where we need to look at how the system is structured and whether the organizations that we help to create are serving us the way that they should be serving us still. Um, and I think a lot of people are obviously having questions about that. I certainly am having questions about that. Um, I, 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 like, I don't know if if necessarily taking the leadership position again within these organizations or talking to the w, uh, WHO or WTO or, or any of the the others that China or Russia um, have immense influence in is going to do us any favors in the long run. You talked about forming a coalition earlier with uh, NATO or, or the United Nations or anything like that. And there's so much influence from parties that will will never uh, be in alignment uh, with, with the U.S. from a, a political or economic standpoint that there's no point in even having the discussion. So what does the world look like after this if we can't rely on those?
2: Right, and and the, the the prevailing theory, basically coming out of the end of the Cold War, with this idea of engagement, that if you engage China, Phil, it's, it's modernization theory, right? The idea that economic development leads to democracy, and if you pull China into this economic system, if you bring them into the World Trade Organization, if you embrace them over time, the economic opportunities, uh, you know, provided by globalization and the free market system, will force not force them, but inevitably there will be political reform and that economic development will lead to democracy. And what we've seen is modernization theory was dramatically wrong with China. And and so the question now is, how do we respond to that? Do we continue, to your point, uh, Nick, do we continue to engage them? Do we continue to welcome them into these institutions? Or do we start to push back? And what does that look like? I mean, the, the idea of embracing an engagement was a bipartisan consensus you know bill clinton began the conversation about bringing china into the wto but but george w bush finished it right i mean this was this was just accepted Orthodoxy that you know the longer China embraces this system of free market, the free market it will democratize, and it's gone the other direction over the last five years. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I I think this is the this this question is is really interesting, and there's there's a couple of elements to it. I mean, you were talking about Nick, like what does you know what does the system look like, or we need to rethink the system, and I, I think you're right. I think the assumption for the last whatever 50 years has been that all of these things go hand in hand economic development and democracy and peace and all of these other elements and so when we talked about globalization or interdependence it it brought all of those together but in fact they don't all go hand in hand as you mentioned you know economic growth doesn't necessarily lead to democracy i think of uh, there's Two political scientists, political economists, Jaworski and Lamonji, who talk about how, in fact, economic growth leads to stability, right? So when yeah. as long as the Chinese economy is booming, they're not going to shift away from their system um, because things are going well. And so uh, anyway, I, th- I think we need to think about if we have to choose, do we have do we choose economic Prosperity, like when we think of globalization and interdependence, do we want the free trade? We all get rich aspect of it. Or do we want the sort of democratization part of it? Because which which you focus on matters. And until we sort of untangle those, um, it's hard to really move forward because what what happens, you know, when you talk about engaging with China, we engaged on this belief that 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 it would, you know, push China to democracy Um, engagement worked on the economic front, right? China boomed. We benefited economically from the trade relationship there. But it didn't take into account security questions, where we're now entirely dependent on China in so many different ways. It didn't take into account the human rights sort of dimension of things. And so, you know, which of those do we value more? Do we value the economic growth? Or are we willing to say, we're going to take an economic hit in order to increase our security or in order to increase, you know, democracy or values that we believe in? And it was easy as long as we thought that those all went together. But but you know we can't be naive like that anymore. They don't always go together. And so what which ones take priority?
2: And I think that's it's a great point. And it's an interesting contra- uh, uh, comparison to the Cold War where we were battling the Soviet Union on very different economic systems. That's not necessarily the case here, right? I mean, if you think about the global economic international economic order, China would now continue that order, right? They're not looking to undermine the system. They're looking to benefit and continue to preserve that system. Um, Not the political side, not democracy, but certainly the idea that, uh, you know, free trade right as as free as it can get like that system they want to preserve so it's a really weird dynamic where what matters more to your point phil do we care more about political rights or do we care about economic rights my thought is, my guess is that we're going to use this politically uh or candidates will use this to say that we need to confront china
0: but i don't i think that's really really dangerous mm-hmm. well and depending on what you choose that that answers the question of how you punish china so i mean a, yeah. a, you know a full fledged investment into we're going to start you know we're not going to be so dependent on china for things like medical supplies and you know yeah. vaccines and all of these other things that's that Supply is good for that is a security issue but it's also a way of of you know punishing China, right? If, if, if we're not dependent on China, then we're not as bound to them. We are, we are freer to, we are more free to critique them, to criticize them and all these other things. And so, I mean, that in my mind is the, is the path forward, right? We, whether it, it doesn't have to be all produced in the U S but shifting our, our dependence away from China is, is a step, but. There's an economic cost with that, right? It means the cost right. of goods go up and the cost of living goes up, and and you know, as a polit, you know, politicians don't want to do that. They don't want to to raise the cost of living for people, and so it, it is it is a it's a quagmire we're stuck in. Yeah, but I, this is the time if you're
2: going to make. Oh, sorry, Nick, if you're going to make a change, this is the time, right? Suddenly you have an opportunity to do that. I'm, go ahead,
1: Nick. <laughs> no, 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 you're you're right. I I, I think that obviously there's going to be economic consequences to to, to this, but I, I think the the proof is in the pudding in the sense that. China is already saying that there are going to be consequences if there are any sort if there is any sort of either political or economic pushback like that, whether it's directly targeted or not. Um, that suggests to me that uh, they're worried about it, but also the way that they're playing the game is obviously not the right way to play the game anymore. So, yeah, something needs to be done um, either way. It's 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 going to hurt. There's just no way around it, unfortunately.
2: You know, we could talk about like the Cold War, George Kennan's idea of containment. And the idea was that you contain the Soviet Union, you don't allow them to spread. I don't think that works perfectly here. But part of containment was allowing the internal contradictions of the Soviet Union to be exposed. And I think the United States would benefit from exposing China and some of the problems there. Uh, Nick, you brought up the Uyghurs, uh, the repressive system, nationalism, China's moving in the wrong direction. And what the United States... Could do is clean up its own act and just say, "Who do you want to lead this system? Right? Do you is this what you want? Non democracy? You know, lack of transparency? I think that would go a long way in terms of 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 forcing China to clean up its its behavior.
1: Mm -hmm. We're more worried about Mike Pence wearing a mask or not in a in a uh, manufacturing plant. So we have bigger fish to fry. How come they don't wear masks, Nick? This is simple. They should wear masks, right? (laughs) And then
2: Trump goes to a mask factory yesterday. And doesn't wear a mask. Right? He has his goggles. He goggles. He wears the goggles so nothing hits his face. But he doesn't wear a mask. I, I don't know, Nick. This I just can't. I, I can't. You know, I, I've heard I, that the deal. only
0: way you catch the virus is through the eye. So <laughs> I'm think
2: he's i right. <laughs> sure he, Trump was worried about looking stupid. He looked dumber in those glasses than he would have if he did a mask on. Probably. I don't know. It's a joke for me. <laughs> All right. Should we talk
0: beers? Yes. Phil, start us off. All right, so I am having uh, my, the last of my beers from Hill Farmstead Brewery, which is up in uh, uh, in Vermont, which is, again, a fantastic brewery. Every beer I've had from there has been really good. Um, and the one I'm having tonight is called a First and Last Things. There's the can if you're watching um, uh, at home. Uh, it's, an, it's an IPA. They do a variety of different IPAs. This one's uh, made with, you know, four or five different types of hops um it's as as is the case with uh, all of their beers it is excellent it is really good it doesn't uh, some of their beers i've i've had and I immediately react with a this is the best beer i've ever had type of reaction this is this is an excellent beer it's not it doesn't have that sort of you know untouchable standard but it's you know it's got a little bit of citrus but it's more the ipa that leans towards uh i forget what the term uh tom told me to use is but you know resiny that kind of uh flavor earthy more flavors um it's it's very good very solid i would gladly you know ex- accept a six pack more of them is that a little can it looks kind of small <laughs> yeah, it's but it's a you know it's a classic 12 ounce so but okay that's, that's, uh, nice. yeah
1: yeah it's just small for us yeah. <laughs> so nick you're having a margarita yeah I, I i didn't bother going out again this week um no we got uh, uh margaritas from uh, uh the our local place around here uh the bar that we we love in in town um so we're trying to support local businesses still uh, and then i just had another end all ipa which is uh from solemn which is also uh, a local brewery um still good i'm i'm certainly i'll be drinking more of them Uh, over the next several days uh i'll I'll have a new one next week but the margarita was good it had habanero in it it was Mm. delicious Mm -hmm. it's good you're staying
2: in nick that's the right thing to do
1: tom is going to be very disappointed in me again
2: (laughs) so i'm enjoying an easy keepers uh which is a beer from pipeworks which is out of chicago and this is their oatmeal stout and uh it's solid uh i mean it's you know it's it's uh got a little bit of maltiness to it but it's not my favorite style i've had from them and and pipeworks is kind of like that some of their beers i love some of them i i don't this i would just say is is solid it doesn't have sometimes they can have a nice little sweetness not too sweet but this is just just a little um i don't know i don't know what the word is but not not great it's not great so so i would say this one's uh not my favorite uh from
1: pipeworks but still solid nice um, like I mentioned in the beginning, if you guys want to check out the beers that we have on the podcast, uh, just follow us on Untapped, which you can download on iOS or Android, uh, and look for Barstool Politics on there.
2: All right. Time to jump to speed round. So if you've turned on the news lately, you've no doubt seen the video of the freedom rallies across the country. We discussed we discussed them a few weeks back and they've continued with events this week in Michigan, Kentucky and a big one not far from Phil in Boston. Uh, Protesters in Boston massed in front of the state house chanting, quote, end the shutdown now and carried signs with messages like liberty and freedom now. In Kentucky, one of the organizers told the crowd, quote, we are here today standing up for liberty. So if somebody wants to use their liberty to social distance, they are free and welcome to do that, unquote. Uh, the group's embrace of the concept of freedom and liberty led to a fascinating Twitter review from Tom Nichols. Nichols is a well-known professor of international affairs at the U.S. Naval War College, and it's also important to note that he's a conservative. Uh, Nichols was responding to a protest in Arizona that ended with the host encouraging everyone to hold hands during the playing of amazing greats. Now, Nichols writes, quote, This is how Americans now interpret freedom, not as a political condition in a democratic society, but as a constant chant of, quote, you're not the boss of me. This is not freedom, or at least not freedom in any political sense. It's a childlike understanding of autonomy. Uh, He also goes on to say, quote, this is what happens when people believe that freedom means telling everyone no, whether it's at work or at a doctor's office or at a group activity of any kind. It's a stage toddlers go through, but they grow out of it. This is permanent childhood, unquote. Now, I found this to be a rather engaging debate over the meaning of freedom and thought it might be worth a few minutes of our time. Feel these protesters force us to grapple with the longstanding and often contested meaning of freedom. Feel free to take this in any direction you like. Oh, Jesus. <laughs>
0: I'm gonna cut that out of the, the final <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah I mean I think this is you know Tom when he was on last time talked about or maybe it was the time before talked about the difference between sort of a libertarian and an anarchist and that that gets at this in some ways um, which is I, I mean I ultimately I think all the all questions of freedom when we're talking about freedom require weighing of of various rights against each other right so uh, if I claim that I'm free to do whatever I want, then, you know, I, so an example, right. If I, if I shoot you, Bill, I can claim that that's my right. I am free to shoot Bill, but that also, you know, impinges on your freedom to not get shot. Right. Yeah. I don't like that. I don't like that
2: version of freedom at all.
0: and, And so we, we can't all be, you know, all be free. Like Freedom requires some, or at least a collective good, right? A collective, some level of society contributes to my ability to be free. The analogy or the example I think of is national defense, right? Um, you know, we we pool our resources, we collectively contribute to this, we all sacrifice, we give up, you know, tax dollars or whatever to do this because it contributes to a, a greater level of freedom. And that does feel like, to some extent, that has been lost. I mean, Tom Nichols is is you know he's he's stating it very bluntly, but I, I do think this idea that that in order to be free, or that we as a society, that that freedom as a society does require some level of you know a sacrifice or or conscious action on my on my part. That I can't just that freedom doesn't just mean I get to do whatever the hell I want. That that is one type of freedom, but it is not it's not a particularly good
1: type of freedom.
2: Right. Right. Yeah. Nick, you look free.
1: <laughs> yeah, I feel free. That's why I didn't go out to get beer this week. Um, I, I I understand his his viewpoint. Um, I, I think that a number of the protesters and movements that we've seen over the past couple of weeks are certainly not full of, but there's a significant uh, portion of them that are people who are just tired of being inside who want to be able to go about their daily lives. And, you know, people that are are getting interviewed and saying, I just want a fucking haircut. Um, you, you are not the ones that we need putting the message out there. Um, but I, I think there's a difference between that and people who feel that as much freedom as there was that the system that is in place now continues to impinge on their freedom, not necessarily on a daily basis, but in the way that they operate their lives um, without any due recourse, um, we've pretty much unilaterally shut down every aspect of the country um, without any understanding of when that's going to change, when there's going to be some sort of return to normalcy, and not just uh, again how you operate on a daily basis, but how you provide for your family, uh, you know, how, how you, you're physically able to, to find a job after this is all done, how to, to get the, the funds that you need from unemployment, which is still unclear for a lot of people in a lot of different situations. Uh, and there doesn't seem to be any, any understanding of when that's going to change or what that means to a person's individual rights. When you have governors going, I wasn't thinking about the Bill of Rights, I was thinking about keeping people safe, that should be a scary thing for people because as much as there's collective action here and rightfully so that that you should be trying to keep people safe at what point does that cross into just this overbearing nanny state uh that that while it might have people's best interest in mind it doesn't necessarily take their their inalienable rights uh, into account uh, in the in the the same capacity, um, and I think there are a lot more people who evince that perspective who are getting shut down, uh, and people are telling them, "Well, you just don't care about people dying." Obviously, we care about people dying, but at some point, somebody has has to have something to live for too. And I know I've said that a bunch of times over the past few weeks. Um, Yeah, I think that it's a again, we talk about a vocal minority that's that's, uh, you know, they're just being idiotic. But the subtext of this is that people are afraid that when this is all said and done, that their individual core uh, rights are are not going to be what they were when we went into this, which is a scary, scary thought. (laughs)
2: Yeah, it's it's a great question. I, I really, again, I, I've been I, I've been thinking a lot about this this week. There, Isaiah Berlin was this philosopher, and he talked about negative uh, freedom versus positive freedom. And in the United States, we embrace negative freedom—the idea that you are free from government. That's the kind of freedom we like. We don't want government. Forget the bell. Um, <laughs> impinging upon us. And that's one type of freedom. But positive freedom also thinks about the other side, which is, you know, if you're a poor kid in a poor neighborhood who has crappy schools, you know, you're not free the same way that others who have opportunities are. And it, it strikes me that we've embraced this conception of negative freedom. And again, these I think these protesters are an extreme example of that. Like, you can't tell me what to do. I'm free to do whatever I want. Like, Phil wants to shoot me, right? That's that's one version of freedom. <laughs> But there are times when that's really, really dangerous. Um, Like if I decided I wanted to be free and drive on the wrong side of the road, like you government can't tell me what to do. There are real benefits from telling me to drive on the right side. Uh, I saw somebody today posted about like during when Germany was bombing uh, London during World War II. If some idiot said, no, I'm free to turn on my lights. Right. That could have been really, really dangerous. Right. So it's thinking about, you know, the sense of freedom and and I, while I, I understand the desire to get back out there and to get back to work, and I understand the concern about government constraining our behaviors, I, I, I do think we as a country need to reckon with this, this divide to say that our conception of freedom has is, is, is settled on this government can't tell us what to do in a way that precludes all these other really, really important elements of freedom. And I don't know, I, I think this is, I'm, I'm kind of fascinated by this question.
0: Uh, go ahead, Phil. I, I can't help but think that that also comes back to the conversations we've had for years now about national unity and and partisanship and divisions and whatnot, right? If if it's harder, when you, when you get into that deep partisan, really sort of anti, you know, people are, partisanship is about anti-partisanship as much as right. anything else, right? It's like, I hate Democrats or I hate Republicans. When you get into that sort of deep divisive sort of state where you think of everything along those lines, it's hard to get behind sort of a national unity, we're doing this for the collective good sort of sort of uh, sort of approach which is what is necessary um, it feels like that's something that that has that, I don't know that we've lost it but it's certainly been eroded
2: well and I think that's why you know this critique coming from from Tom Nichols a conservativism Tom does not want big government right he he's very much against that but he also understands that to be a citizen means something, right? It's not just that the government can't tell you what to do in all circumstances, that you bear some responsibility to think about the collective good. And again, now this isn't drifting into like socialism and communism collective good, but the idea that you bear some responsibility to make an environment where everybody is truly free. And I don't know, I, I just, I, I think that's that's something that these protesters are missing.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I, that's, this is the conversation, especially when, when Tom is here, um, that I, I tend to agree with. It's this, Constant battle against the lowest common denominator, the the idiots out there who aren't going to listen to you no matter what, who we continue to listen to and who continue to get put on national media, national media outlets because they're so fucking crazy. I think that, again, when you have 75 to 80 percent compliance in most places in the country for the first month or six weeks of this pandemic that says that people are willing to sacrifice for the common good. But at some point you start going, well, now I don't have a job. Um, my kids aren't going back to school, but I still have to pay for it. Um, I don't have the ability to find another job because nothing is physically open. Yeah. How the hell am I going to do this? And when I ask for some sort of plan or timeline or anything like that, you don't have anything besides saying that, if people don't follow the orders, that we're going to go back into full lockdown. That's not acceptable anymore. You have to give me something concrete to make this tolerable. Like we've we've done what we've been asked. So now give me something. Do something. So Nick, you're,
2: Nick, you're being very reasonable, but I don't think these protesters always are. No, right? I mean, and I mean, they're not.
1: They're absolutely not.
2: But- In Texas, they were all, I think it was Texas, that they were all upset about something not being opened. Oh, no, it was it was a hair salon uh, that I think uh, are opening on Friday. And this woman said that she wanted to open her salon on Wednesday, right? And she tore up the papers. And I thought... Come on two days right I mean there there has to be a balance here where you're you're respecting governance and autonomy and your fellow citizens. I, I'm just not sure their motivation is the motivation you prescribe to them Nick. so
1: here's the other aspect of it though in that same situation, the woman was getting sentenced to potentially uh you know a, a handful of days in in prison. part of the order was she could get released if she publicly if she was contrite and made a public apology about what she did so it wasn't about the physical act of opening it was about proving something to wider society that she made a mistake and i and and kowtowing to what the state is telling her to do that to a lot of people regardless of what situation you were in whether we were in this situation or not Mm -hmm. is unacceptable the, the state shouldn't have the right to tell you to apologize to anyone. You can talk about her defying an order, which there's still a, a, a legal question there, whether or not the order should be in place. But to ask her to do that is unacceptable a lot of people and is emblematic of what the system has become.
0: But it's been that way forever, right? I mean, yeah, forever, I agree. The, the idea is that if you like are contrite, you don't get as harsh a sentence in the legal system. So, I mean, that, that's not, I don't know if that's necessarily new I, you're you're right you can i think it's not wrong to have a problem with that um i i can't, i keep thinking about like the idea of social capital as as we have this conversation right which is the the you know not to be too political sciencey but you know robert putnam and this idea of trust which is essential to democracy that if you don't trust your fellow citizens democracy breaks down and it feels like we really lack that sense of trust right yeah. the idea that the other people uh, the other side is acting in good faith. Even if you don't like agree with their principles, they are they're well-intentioned. Right. And, and it feels like that's gone. in and, and yeah, it's, well, now I'm really depressed about the state of, of
1: American democracy. <laughs> the road Perfect to hell is paved with good intentions, Phil.
0: Yeah. <laughs>
2: yes. Perfect time to transition to Michael Flynn. All right, so Michael Flynn is back and he's stirring up the legal world once again. This week, Flynn's lawyer released FBI records documenting conversations that occurred with the FBI about how to handle Flynn's case. These documents have led Trump and his supporters to argue once again that Flynn was framed by malicious agents of the deep state. Flynn's lawyers point to one note where an FBI official asks, quote, what's the goal? Truth, admission, or to get him to lie so we can prosecute him or get him fired, unquote. Other notes show how the FBI planned to refresh Flynn's memory if he lied. On Fox News, hosts speculated that Flynn will soon be completely exonerated. The National Review's editorial board insisted that Flynn has been treated unjustly by the FBI. And of course, the president jumped in on Twitter, writing, quote, What happened to General Michael Flynn? A war hero should never be allowed to happen to a citizen of the United States again, unquote. He went on to suggest that he might consider granting Flynn a pardon or even rehiring him. Now, it's important to note that none of this provides anything close to an exoneration of Flynn. At the end of the day, Flynn still lied to the vice president, chief of staff, press secretary and the FBI about his conversations with the Russian ambassador over U.S. sanctions. Phil, this case is fascinating, maddening and a perfect example of the rule of law under the Trump administration. You've always had a testy relationship with the FBI. What's your reaction to this one?
0: I mean, this is this is a classic example of of how two things can be true, right? This is a complicated situation in which uh, you can both be troubled by the, the tactics that law enforcement is allowed to use, right. These are not all, these are not all, these are not, uh, you know, odd or unusual tactics that law enforcement uses. So you can be troubled by this. If you're troubled by it, when it happens to Michael Flynn, you should be troubled by it when it happens to, you know, every other citizen in the United States. So you can be, you can, you can think that, wow, this is, this is kind of, you know, CD that they're, you know, setting up a trap for him and all of that. Um, while also s- still realizing that Michael Flynn is totally guilty, right? <laughs> that this, that the two don't necessarily counteract each other. So, it, you know, we talked about, uh, again, you know, realizing uh, in the first topic, realizing that China is to blame, doesn't let other people off the hook. This is, this is the same thing, right? That, that realizing it, it's not a black and white thing. This doesn't mean that Flynn was framed or that he's innocent. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, this is this is there's there's all sorts of things that law enforcement is allowed to do uh, that is sort of troubling right you're not allowed you're not legally allowed I, I i'm not a lawyer so maybe i'm wrong on this but my impression is you're not allowed to lie lie to law to police officers um to law enforcement but no, they're totally no. allowed to lie to you right they can tell you whatever the hell they want as long as it gets you to you know to to confess or to do whatever you want so i mean I, I, there are all sorts of advantages that law enforcement has and that doesn't you don't have to be you know that's not I'm not opposed to law enforcement. I think enforcing laws is a fantastic thing. Um, but uh, at the yeah, at the same time, some of this stuff is some of these tactics are troubling.
1: Mm-hmm. Nick, uh, yeah, I don't really disagree with any of that. Uh, he, this is this is a really difficult situation, and I think this is a, a conversation that we've had a, a few other times about the the powers of the federal government. Uh, and federal uh, investigatory um, bodies, uh, specifically the FBI. Um, It's the fact that that conversation can happen um, and there isn't more pushback, not necessarily for this particular case, but most likely that they handle numerous other cases in this same way to not look for necessarily justice, but find a way to get a particular witness on something because he's going to make a statement uh, in, in, you know, the improper in, in order, or they're going to tell him what the consequences are for making a statement, a false statement after he says something as opposed to before. Um, that's, that's scary. Um, yeah, but he, in, in essence, he, he, he pled guilty. He, he lied, right? So, I mean, it, it's with this one, I'm not necessarily sure where I come down because he, he did lie. But if the system itself is rigged to where they allowed him to lie and then told him about the consequences of that in a particular situation or because of uh, the way that a, a regulation or a law is structured... I have a problem with that too. So I'm not, I don't know. Everybody's kind of an asshole in this one.
2: (laughs) I think you're, you're both a bunch of softies. All right. So here's what happened, right? I mean, if you're interviewing somebody that you think committed a crime, like you, you could ask them questions, right? I mean, I think there's part of this is that, you know, you're trying to get somebody, you know, the, the idea that you want to try to get him to admit his lies, or you want to, to get him fired, right? I mean, I don't know, I, I think what they did is perfectly fine. Um, let's just go through the details, right? So he lied four times to the FBI, four times in that conversation. Um, then under oath to a judge, he said that he was not set up. So he said, under oath, I was not set up. Uh, he also told two judges that he was guilty, right? I mean, so I feel like, All of this is how the justice system is supposed to work. Right. They they thought that he had committed a crime. They came in and asked him some questions and gave him the opportunity to tell the truth. He didn't do so. Um, So if the fact that they went in there thinking this guy's a criminal um, and thought, let's try to get him to admit his crime, I I have I'm not sympathetic to that at all. What I'm afraid of is what's happening now, where Trump and others are spinning this as he's innocent, right? I'm open to a conversation about those tactics, and I think you're both right there that we can have a conversation. But that's not what's happening here. Suddenly, this is that you know Flynn is exonerated. That's a bunch of garbage, right? This is a guy who committed crimes, actually committed way more crimes, uh, but the FBI only charged him with these, you know, with lying. So I don't know. I this one's this has got me worked up. I'm just very upset about this, Nick. Because this is this is what Trump does to the legal system, right? This is the danger of being disconnected from reality, not letting law dictate things, but letting the political spin. Trump is going to continue to spin this and it's going to turn out that, well, he'll be a hero. He'll get a cable news show after this. He'll be Oliver North. And that that's not what should have happened.
1: Do you think if he just apologizes, says he was sorry that they'll let him go? (laughs)
2: <laughs> Not anymore. <laughs> FBI doesn't mess around. You know, maybe some local Texas jug, you, judge you can apologize. The FBI they don't care about apologies. Oh. Uh, all right, I'm still worked going. up about that. But let's talk about <laughs> Swedish people. So, all right, so Sweden has been getting lots of attention for its approach to handling the coronavirus. Sweden has employed one of the loosest restrictions to the coronavirus, and unlike its European neighbor neighbors, there was no lockdown. Bars and restaurants are open, and hairdress as are hairdressers and gyms. Most travel and mass gatherings are not allowed, and some schools have been closed, but restrictions from government are considerably less severe than many other countries. Unlike other countries, Sweden is embracing a targeted herd immunity strategy. The results have been mixed, and only time will tell. Sweden has the highest fatalities and uh, case count per capita in Scandinavia, but it's lower than some of its neighbors to the south economic disruption has been significant but not as debilitating as other countries what is really fascinating is the way our political system has reacted to the swedish model suddenly american politics seems to have flipped on its head with conservatives embracing sweden and liberals expressing concern over the approach phil your love of swedish meatballs is legendary Uh, do you share a similar love for sweden's approach to the coronavirus My entry, my my like questions, you know, transitions are just on,
0: <laughs> on fire today. <laughs> uh, so my dramatic pause are, is is because I don't, uh, you know, I don't know if I agree with with Sweden's approach. I, I, I mean, uh, the evidence. There's a lot of evidence that it could be potentially really disastrous. I mean, they, it's not just that their death count is is going up. They're now like seventh in the world on a per capita basis in terms of death count. The they're, they're, the guy who's like putting the plan together said today that the, the high fatality rate has been shocking to them. They were not expecting this. And so, um, you know, it, it certainly looks problematic at this point. Mm-hmm. But I think I, I come back around to... Um, what we've talked about before, which is there's so much we don't know about this virus still. It, it could, I, I think, on the surface, um, my tendency is to think that this is not a wise approach because there's so much we don't know. Uh, it could turn out to be that they're right. It could turn out to be that it's already more widespread or it's not as deadly as we thought, or, you know, what, who knows, maybe in the long run there will be lower fatalities in Sweden, or they'll be able to lower economic costs, but we don't know that So they're, the, the fact is you're making you're you're gambling with people's lives at this point, right? and it, and it to some extent, it's about risk tolerance. It's about how much risk are you willing to take on and and they're willing to do that in in ways that other places aren't. so i, I I'm not willing to come out and say that they're right or they're wrong. maybe they'll they'll end up being right. I think with what we know now, it's a problematic approach. Um, I, the other part about all of this is that there, there's other elements to this. When you talk about the right and the you know and the left in the U.S. embracing them, and whether or not this model would have, would work in the U.S. or in other places, is uh, you know as a as a comparativist, there's all it's mm-hmm. it's such a complex comparison, right? There are elements of political and social culture in Sweden that don't. Fit here, right? I mean, they have a different approach to society, and and the stuff we talked about a minute ago about freedom and and you know the idea of the collective good and it's just different, right? Even if you took the exact same policy and put them in place in the U.S. and in Sweden, they would probably play out differently because of how people think of society and each other and their country. And so the idea that hey, it maybe it's working in Sweden, we should do the exact same thing uh is you know there might be truth to that there might be elements of it that we can pull but it's just not as simple a comparison as 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 people want it to be i think
2: Mm -hmm. i love when you talk as a comparative politics phil (laughs) (laughs) hey
1: can uh can you go i gotta close these blinds because i'm i'm glowing right now yeah yeah, of course
2: yeah i know i'm gonna about the comparative angle i I, there's part of me that thinks that you're right we can't know things for a while right that this is going to have to play out and it's hard i mean we've been hard on trump and i think there are good reasons for that he screwed up a lot of things but you look around the world, everybody is screwing up. I mean, right. Sweden has a strategy. And if it's going to work anywhere, it would work in Sweden. You were talking about social capital earlier. Yep. This is a place where citizens take their sense of citizenship seriously. They're responsible. Um, and if if numbers are going up there, that's concerning. But everybody's trying different methods. And not many of them work. I mean, you're seeing that. There's been some success in Germany and South Korea, but they're also taking their lumps, right? So it's everybody is is limping through this. You know, what will be fascinating is a few years down the road to look at this and say, OK, or maybe even a year down the road, what tactics worked best and then implement those because we're going to have other pandemics, you know, in a globalized world this stuff is going to continue and so to be able to look at the states that tried things and that they worked you know maybe south korea early testing and testing uh, aggressively might
0: be the the pattern
1: uh, from a, we probably from won't have that if we uh, if we wall off china so it's it's just a thought <laughs> but you know i'm sorry go ahead phil
0: i, I was just to say from a purely abstract like theoretical comparativist approach when you ignore the fact that human lives are on on the line it's good that different places are trying different things right i mean that's that's where you yep. get a natural experiment and you figure out what works and what doesn't. Uh, if it if it fails, I mean, England tried, you know, Britain tried something similar to this and quit because it was going badly. So if it fails, it means the cost of human lives, which is, you know, that's when it becomes real. <laughs> but right. in the abstract, yeah. the more variety, the the better.
2: Yeah. This is why the, the mayor of Las Vegas said that she was willing to be the control group, right? right? I mean, this mm-hmm. that's fine in, in, you know, in social science research. Right. It's not okay with the pandemic.
1: <laughs> well, I, I mean, you you kind of touched on it, Phil. What is... What is the amount of of risk or 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 death that we're willing to contend with? Is it ten thousand lives? Is it a hundred thousand lives? Is one life equal to ten? Like, wh- where where is the cutoff point where it's it's too much? And I I feel like there isn't a good discussion about it, and there's never a, a good way to to kind of quantify that or or define it. Um, yeah, I mean, we need to be taking different approaches to this. What um, I think time will tell uh, if Sweden's approach is is um, is beneficial or not, but regardless of what's currently happening, while this is going on, you can be sure that um, when we're talking about uh, a second wave in just about other places, there will be at least a fairly significant portion of their population that's already been exposed, uh, come you know, fall, winter, flu season, of this year uh, and into next year. Um so again it 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 depends on what you are willing to sacrifice. We we talk about sacrifice when it's staying indoors and and you know not being able to go get a haircut, but when we're talking about greater society and what we're willing to do to keep that going to think that you're not going to to lose people in this situation or a significant amount of people is is unrealistic it's just not going to happen keeping people indoors indefinitely is not going to solve the problem we have no idea when a treatment's going to come we have no idea when a vaccine is going to come at some point you need to start getting creative with your approaches um and just saying that you know when a certain amount of people comply or we start to see a decline uh for a few days that that means we can start gradually opening things i'm not necessarily i'm not necessarily sure that that's the right approach um we're going to need to see some more extreme ways of handling this uh without uh, a particular medicinal treatment or vaccine um what that means it's you know it's it's the cold reality of the situation we have no idea what this is going to look like and frankly, we don't have enough data to to figure out what the the actual fatality rate of this is um, when it's all said and done. So I I, I don't know. Like I, I I get it. Like obviously, you want to save as many lives as is humanly possible. It, like it's it's going to happen at some point. You can certainly mitigate it, but given what we've seen, you're you're not going to be able to completely avoid it. So I I, I don't know.
0: I mean, there there are so many uncertainties. That's where the the risk assessment becomes difficult. Because you're right, if if there's a second wave and Sweden proves to be to have you know widespread immunity in the long run, that could really benefit them. On the other hand, if if that immunity, if people can be reinfected or it advi- you know it mutates right. in some way, yeah. then they've paid this high human toll early on for no advantage in the long run. And we just don't we just don't know, yeah. right? I mean, it's where yeah. a year from now we'll know it's again we'll be able to look back and figure out who had the best strategies and but but we're we're all doing we're all muddling through we're doing the best we can with the limited information we have at this point yeah mm-hmm. i'm
2: I'm just glad we got jared kushner in charge of all of this yeah. right he's in charge of, <laughs> of the vaccine now this guy um yeah Did you see the
0: new yeah, york he, times article today where he had his uh, like 12 friends who were acting as volunteers on the tip line it's good stuff we're, we're <laughs>
2: <in> <laughs> i'm attacking government but there's a reason you have government there's a reason you have a bureaucracy and it's because putting jared kushner and his buddies in charge of things isn't always the best course of action
1: so. I don't know. the The data hasn't proven that out yet, so we, we don't know. <laughs> All right. So for our final topic, I'm going to ask. I'm
2: going to present you, gentlemen, with a situation and ask you to draw on your deep understanding of the human psyche and ample answer a simple question: Why would he do that? <laughs> Now, if you've listened to Donald Trump recently, you've likely likely heard him draw parallels between the coronavirus and the Spanish flu of 1917. For instance, recently Trump noted, quote, you could probably go back to 1917, where it was a terrible period of time. You all know what happened in 1917, unquote. He's also noted that 1917, quote, was the worst of all time. But it was also not as bad as here. It was very bad. It was very rough. It was a bad one. But it wasn't quite like what we're going through right now, unquote. According to FactBase, a website that catalogs Trump's public statements, he has made at least 27 references to a 1917 flu pandemic since March 11th. The only problem, the Spanish flu, which killed more than 650,000 Americans, was not detected in the United States until the spring of 1918. If you go to Wikipedia, the opening line of the Spanish flu entry reads, quote, the Spanish flu, also known as the 1918 flu pandemic. Well, you may say Trump has no use for Wikipedia, but to that I would point out that Trump's own grandfather died of the flu in 1918. So for the life of me, I can't understand why he keeps referencing 1917. So I ask you, gentlemen, please tell me, why would he do that? Phil?
0: Uh, Well, I mean, this is a really complicated question, but really it comes down to the fact that uh, facts don't matter to him, and he's never read a book in his life. That's the answer.
2: <laughs> Done.
0: <laughs>
1: Nick, why would he do that? Um, I think this is an interesting question, personally. Because mm-hmm. realistically, mm-hmm. if we're talking about the spring of 1918, uh, it most likely originated in 1917. <laughs> so he's not technically incorrect. More importantly, he's probably more focused on the uh, the origin of a particular disease. Um. Than it seems like him. The, yeah. Then yeah, the the actual current predicament. So just as it started in 1917 and not 1918, <laughs> it started in 19. China and it didn't start somewhere else. So obviously he's correct in all of his assumptions. <laughs> I don't really know why we're even talking about this. This was a dumb, I wouldn't be surprised dumb thing, Bill. I'm surprised Wait, at you. He's going he's
2: gonna to hear this podcast maybe, and then he's going to use that explanation, right? Oh, there's certainly – it was here in 1917. Okay. All right. There's two elements to this. One, where did the 1917 come from? I'm convinced. You know, there was the World War One movie about 1917, had all the promos. He saw that. Like the ad was 1917. So that number has been in his head. Okay. That's fine. But the fact that I'm sure somebody within the administration has pointed out to him, Mr. President, it's actually the 1918 flu, but he continues to double down and run with the 1970s. That's also interesting, right? And suggests that the guy doesn't care about history, doesn't care about facts, right? I mean, Nick, obviously, somebody
0: has to have pointed out
2: that it's called the 1918 flu. Have
0: they? Yes. (laughs) Yes. I mean, <laughs> I don't the only reason I say that is he is a, he is a person who does not like to be told he is wrong. So and he has surrounded himself with yes men. So do wow. do you think that someone that actually is, can, can If you work for Trump, do you pull him aside after a press conference and say you keep getting the date wrong? He like he's not going to handle that well. You just mm-hmm. let him talk because it doesn't matter, right? It's it's the prince. It's the it's the bigger idea, not this date. The facts that matter. So just let Trump mm-hmm. do Trump. I, I, I maybe people have said something to him, but I can't imagine that his staff is like pulling him aside. Like Any other previous president makes a factual error and the staff would like scramble to correct it. I don't know that his staff is scrambling to correct it. I don't know that his staff knows that it wasn't 1917.
1: I'm even more upset now, Phil. I'm, I'm more upset. <laughs> I mean, I could easily see see them talking about this and him going, well, it didn't start here. Where did where did it start? It couldn't it start in the US, Spain, Spain. So when it, when when? When did it start? Why do we call it 1918? It wasn't. It wasn't. It started in 1917, right? I'm going to go with
2: 1970. I'm going to start. But here's the thing. This matters because my wife and I were talking the other day and she called it the 1917 pandemic. Mm. And of course, I just lost my mind because I'm like, it's, you know, I gave her the whole lecture about it's 1918. That went over real well. Um, <laughs> I, mean, I think it has a societal impact. Right. People when Trump keeps saying this, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if somebody changes the Wikipedia entry to 1917 because of this and. I don't know, like it feels like we should be grounded at least in some sense of history and and somebody should point out to him. I I really think somebody's pointed out to him and he says, I don't care. Right. I'm going to continue to do this. But but it is possible that
0: (laughs) it's been (laughs) one hundred and three years since the since it happened. And we still refer to it as the Spanish flu, even though. Uh, My understanding is that the the research or the the belief now is that it started in Kansas. So if we still call it the Spanish flu after 103 years, why does it matter if we call it the
1: 1917 versus the 1918?
0: (laughs) (laughs) It is
2: really interesting to think about that starting in Kansas. And again, that's a whole other angle, but no. it's it's interesting to think about where these things originate, what the causes causes are. I'm sure
1: it originally started in China, and then it just kind of worked <laughs> its way over to Kansas, and then to Spain, and then back here. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> in the end, it's it's you know it's all it's all a wash. <laughs> um, I, I mean, hmm, like what? Why? I, I understand I, when we we're talking about this from a historical perspective, and we're talking about. You know, Wikipedia, like it's the arbiter of of historical accuracy. In the context of, especially what we're going through right now, do these things really matter that much? A particular date, Fact? the what? No, 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 not, not not the facts, but how it's how it's presented, uh, I guess, in wider society when we talk about these things. Yeah. When we're talking about one year over another, or whether it came from China or it came from somewhere else, and how we, we define those things, how much of an impact does that have on the conversation?
2: I you know, in, in the grand scheme of things, it probably doesn't matter if he's referencing it in 1917 or 1918, but it it the fact that it's not corrected, right? The fact that he is comfortable with the wrong date suggest a looseness with the truth that I think that has a big impact. We've talked about, you know, the the number, the what, 15,000 lies or whatever the number is these days that he's he's spread or said, I, I think that's why this matters, right? You want the president who has the biggest megaphone in the world to be accurate and everybody makes mistakes, right? That's fine if he did it one time, but then in the future to correct it, the fact that he doesn't correct it is more deeply problematic to me than anything else right that he continues to run with it and it suggests a sort of 1984 looseness with the truth that that i don't know i'm not comfortable with
0: and for me for me it's a symptom of a of a, a larger thing as well which is i i can't help but think that any like really almost any previous president in this situation would have had would wanted to know how the 1918 pandemic played out. They would have researched it. They would have had advisors talking to them about it. It reveals this extent to which there's just not there's not I don't think there's a whole lot of depth of of thought that's put into a whole lot of of the policy decisions that are made, right? I mean it's we've talked about him as a reflex machine. It's the background, the history, the data is is it's not just that that it it's kind of willy nilly with the truth. It's that he doesn't even there's not even like the, you know, the curiosity to go and kind of, you know, look at what has happened in the past or to learn from from previous instances. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, apparently, George W. Bush read a book about the 1918 pandemic, and it, it freaked him out. And it led to policy changes where he was much more aggressive about thinking about pandemics uh,
1: than than he had been. Right. So that's that's why history matters. Books. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that's only your point of view. From my point of it's view, right. the Jedi are evil. So, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. May the fourth be with you, Nick. <laughs> All right. I'm thanks for out. putting up with
2: that one. That was that was that was yeah.
1: Was that it? Yeah, we're done. Oh shit. I thought we had another one after that. <laughs> no, we're we're at an hour fifteen, Nick. We gotta wrap oh, it up. Oh my my apologies. Yeah. Um can you do stuff for me real quick? Yeah, yeah.
2: sure. So, uh, you know, make sure to follow us on on social media, Facebook at Barstool Politics, Twitter at Barstow Paul, P-O-L. Uh, find us on iTunes. Uh, share us with your friends. Uh, Nick's got this wonderful little uh, giveaway of our, our, uh, our uh, swag. Yeah. Uh, you about
1: that? Yeah, we are doing a, a giveaway where uh, one lucky winner is going to get a T-shirt, hoodie, and mug with our logo on it uh from from our uh our teespring page um it's all it's all really good like i wear my stuff all the time um not just because i like to self-promote but because it's comfortable too yeah our our hoodie is fantastic Mm -hmm. it's the best thing i own are
0: are people who are on the podcast eligible to enter that contest
1: (laughs) yes well Just, just use your, your pseudonym and you'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> IP freely. Um, <laughs> yeah, we'll, uh, we'll put the link uh, for that stuff uh, on our social channel. So uh, definitely check that out. Pretty much what you'll have to do is uh, is uh, share the podcast with, with people through Twitter or follow us on Twitter or YouTube or Facebook or anything like that. Uh, and you'll get entries into that. Um, And then next week, uh, like I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, uh, if you weren't here, uh, special guest, uh, Alexander Titus, uh, who worked for uh, the DOD as uh, the undersecretary of uh, or assistant director, I should say, of uh, of biotechnology uh, is going to join us. Uh, We're going to talk about his work with uh, uh, synthetic biology, uh, his perspective on the COVID response. uh, And it should be a really interesting conversation. So definitely tune in for that. Um, same time next week, uh, four thirty PM Central on Wednesday. Um, we do the show live through Facebook and YouTube at this point, so definitely check that out. Um, anything else that I I missed, Nick? Can I say you've up your
2: background game for the video is really good. You got books, you got you know the the James Bond poster. Like you are showing Phil and I, we're, we we got up our game, Phil. I, I, we, uh...
1: <laughs> I'm trying to improve it every week. So at some point I'm going to nail something to the wall and we'll see how that goes and hope, hope it doesn't collapse in the middle of the, uh, the recording. So yeah, we'll, 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 see. Um, yeah, but I think that's, uh, that's it for this week. Uh, and then, uh, just real quick, uh, pineapple on pizza. Yes or no? No, no, no. no. Okay. That's, no. that's, that's sad, yeah. but that, that's fine. We, we can disagree. <laughs> that's, that's your point of view. So you think the Jedi are able to, but that's whatever, you know, whatever. We'll, we'll, we'll just go from there. Um, yeah. We'll see you guys next week. Cheers. Cheers.